What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Joe Curtin and Becky Quick are in Pebble Beach, California for the AT&T Pro-Am Golf Tournament speaking with their host, AT&T chairman and CEO, Randall Stevenson. They hit the economy, a friend's reunion, and streaming. We feel pretty good that by 2025, our numbers should be about 50 million U.S. subscribers to HBO Max. And in New York, Andrew Ross Sorkin is in the studio with the CEO of Uber, Dara Khosrowshahi. We're absolutely exploring the super app concept. We're trying to make the app essentially your everyday use. Is that going to be a global thing? I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Friday, February 7th. Those two big interviews on Squawk Pod begin right after this. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Today, Andrew's interview with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Investors have been watching Uber closely for signs of profitability. When Uber went public on the New York Stock Exchange in May of 2019, Andrew asked Dara about it. And Dara, well, here's what he said. So for us, the path to profitability isn't theoretical. There are cohorts of countries that are profitable. We do reinvest profits aggressively in new business lines like Eats that have great promise. But we're pretty comfortable when we look at the portfolio of businesses that we have, that we have a very strong path to profitability. A few months later, in an interview with CNBC in November, DAR projected profitability by 2021. We are actually targeting 2021 for adjusted EBITDA profitability full year. And this week, around eight months after the company's first trading day, Uber reported its fourth quarter financial results. And as you'll hear, there was also some good news for investors about that profitability goal. Here's Andrew. Uber reported uh, quarterly results last night. The ride-sharing giant announcing on its call with investors it is moving up its target for profitability by a year. Joining us right now for an exclusive interview is Uber CEO Derek Hustershot. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for for coming in. Uh, Let's walk through, if you could, for investors so they understand um, how you think you get there. And when I say get there, I'm talking about profitability. Well, as we made through our way in 2019, we became more and more confident of the strength of our business and the ability of our teams to execute. And if you look at our rides business, for example, in 2019, for every dollar of revenue growth that our rides business achieved, they dropped 
about 80 cents to the bottom line. So this is a business that, as it grows, can become quite profitable. And for 2020, we got together as a team and said, you know what, we can do the same thing, not just for the rides business, but for the whole business. So if you look at our plan for 2020, for every dollar of revenue growth, especially right. from Q4 to Q4, we expect to drop 50 cents to 55 cents to the bottom line. We think that's absolutely doable to get to profitability by Q4, but at the same time make the kinds of investments that we want to make to keep a high growth rate for many years going I want to forward. talk about those other investments in a second because yeah, that's, sure. that's going to be an issue or at least a question mark uh, in terms of how you get there. But in terms of uh, the rideshare business itself, you talked about pricing mm-hmm. and increasing pricing. And one of the questions I think that investors have is about your ability to grow, what the total addressable market looks like, especially if you increase prices, meaning doesn't the market itself shrink in terms of what's available in the future? Yeah, so I think there are different ways of increasing pricing. There's certainly some pricing power that we have in the mainline service because it's a service that people use every day. And frankly, it's a service that's very well priced and and it's a great service. So we do see some pricing power there as well. But there are different ways of increasing pricing. So for example, going after the premium segment. Our U for B business now has a run rate of over $1.2 billion, growing over 50% year on year. We're getting into Uber for Health, growing over 300%. So that's a way of increasing the average price of the service, but really going after a more premium customer. You know I'm cheap. So when I get in a Uber X, is the price going to go up on me? Is that what's happening here? The price on average in New York is going up because of some of the TLC moves that they've made, not right. necessarily because of our pricing. So New York City prices are up. Uh, it's not something that we necessarily like, but it is something that... I feel like the battle between you and Lyft, at least in New York right now, I'm not getting the promotional pricing anymore. Well, I think that... Sad for me, maybe good for you. um, You know, hopefully good for all of us. I do think that the era of only pricing to win business is over. And I think it's leading to the era of actually having a great service. Innovating, for example, for us on safety, making sure that every single time you take Uber, you've got your safety uh, area, you can uh, text 911 if anything happens, you can have someone track your ride. We think you should... Price based on service, not price, just a discount. We talked for a very long time. It felt like a year ago, one of the big strategic efforts was around the pool service. This Mm -hmm. idea, if you get everybody in the vehicle, um, that's where the money would be. It doesn't feel like that is working at the moment. So the pool service is absolutely working in terms of getting more than a person in a vehicle allows you to essentially discount a ride based on the greater efficiency. You have two or three people sharing a ride. We were over discounting. It was an easy way for growth. And our CFO, Nelson Chai, talked about, hey, we're not going to grow with empty calories. So with the pool service now, we're pricing pool at closer to its natural price point. And actually, we're now innovating. For example, one new feature that we're shipping is, it's called Uber for Less, essentially last in, first out. If you want to get an UberX and you're cheap, uh, we'll offer you the opportunity to get in last, get out first, you get a discount on that ride, and essentially then you're riding with a pooled rider. Right. So it's a win-win. The pool rider was going to pool anyway. We get essentially, there's no car, so traffic is lower right. wherever you're going, and you get a discount. That's okay. a win-win. Let's talk about Uber Eats because that's the other major Growth piece, but also uh, money losing piece. It lost $461 million for the quarter. That's a revenue of $734 million. This is such a competitive space. There's talk about consolidation. What do you need to do to get it to profitability, that component of it? Well, 
we need to grow and we need to consolidate. So the business now is at a $13 billion bookings growth rate. It grew 70% year on year in terms of uh, bookings. It grew over 150% in terms of revenue. For a scale player, we are by far the fastest growing. That's a good thing. At the same time, what we've committed to is to get to number one or number two in every market that we compete in, in 12 to 18 months, and you see that happening. So for example, in India, where we had two very strong competitors. We decided to sell our business to one of them and partner up with Zomato. Zomato and our India Rides business are going to work well together. So there are going to be some circumstances where we sell. There are going to be some circumstances that we buy. But the business is very healthy and growing, and we're quite optimistic about it. There are some investors that are worried that you may have to overpay to pick off some of your competitors. How are you thinking about the consolidation aspect of all of this? Um, I've been in business for a long time, and uh, no one has accused me of overpaying. You know, we're going to do smart deals. You're cheap like me. Um, uh, listen, if, if it's a great company, we'll pay up. But, uh, but we're, we, we, our plan A is always organic growth. Right. So as long as organic growth is plan A, plan B, which is acquisitions, is always going to be, or, uh, is, is always going to be opportunistic, and we're going to be quite disciplined. But doing tell so. me how you think about DoorDash. Tell me, think, I mean, there's been talk about... You know, what happens to Postmates, which was thinking about going public, I think was trying to sell itself, frankly, to companies like yours. Just walk us, take us inside the room in terms of have you thought about that thus far? We think about all those um, circumstances. But up to date, uh, we've made the determination that the best way going forward is to do so standalone. Uh, We bought a company or were signed to buy a company called Corner Shop, which, which essentially takes corner grocery stores and, put, and we'll put them on our platform. So we will buy when we see something new, when we right. see a team that's particularly talented, but we're going to be pretty choiceful when we do. Do you anticipate getting out of other big markets? I mean, we talked about India just now. Should we be surprised over the next 12 months if there's an announcement or two about a big market where you say, you know what, no more? We're going to be pretty disciplined. Uh, and but how many if, more markets are there think- like that, that are on the fence right now? Uh, we are number one or number two in over 50% of our countries. It represents the significant majority of our bookings. But that does mean that there are some countries that are in the bubble. And we either have to see a clear path to one or number, number one or number two in profitability, right. or we're going to look to consolidate. Um, we had some analysts on in the last hour who talked about the prospect. It's really the option value on potentially creating a super app, mm-hmm. a la what you see folks like Grab doing Southeast Asia, this idea that in markets where, where people are touching your app every single day, that you can layer on all sorts of other services. How do you think about that right now? We think it's a huge opportunity. So the average Uber user uses us 5.7 times uh, a month. When uh, the number of users that use more than one service has increased by over 50% year on year, and they use us almost 16 times a month. Right. So the frequency increases by three times. We're absolutely exploring the super app concept. If you come on Uber, a lot of times we'll invite you to order food, right. et cetera. Uh, we've got scooters on the app. We've got transit on the app. So we're trying to make the app essentially your everyday use. Is that going to be a global thing or is that in certain markets where you think there's an opportunity? Because right here in the United States, you'd think if, this, if someone was going to create a super app, you would have thought Facebook would have done it a long time ago. Every market is different. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to make sure that we reflect the needs of that market. So I do think that the super app concept is going to be market to market. 
in the Middle East, Kareem, who mm-hmm. is part of our family, yep. is going very hard against Super App. So sometimes we'll have one of our subsidiaries actually go faster so that we can learn from them. And in the Middle East, you can see the Super App concept move very quickly. Okay. While I have you here, I want to talk to you about the impact of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. uh, given uh, your global scale and what you're seeing. Also, I noticed that you had shut down uh, some um, drivers on the Uber service in Mexico as a related, or as related to the coronavirus. What are you seeing as a result of all this? So first of all, anything that we do is based on the advice of health authorities, uh, local health authorities. We don't try to um, do our own research, so to speak. We want to be very diligent. Um, we're not seeing a significant effect on the business overall. Where we see an effect is in North Asia. For example, business in Hong Kong, airport right. business is down pretty significantly. From an overall standpoint with our portfolio, it's not material in any way. And do you hear, I mean, what, what happened in Mexico? Can you speak to that? Do you know about this? Yeah, a couple of drivers were suspected right. to have had the virus. So out of an abundance of caution, we looked at who rode with them and took them off the system to make sure that they're okay. Uh, now we think that things are now returned to normal. Right. But again, we, we, the data that we have allows us to create a great service, and this is an advantage. It's not how you want to use uh, the service, but it is a right. potential um, advantage. Talking about the data you have, I have a privacy question for you, which sure. is uh, there was some news recently uh, that um, uh, there was a uh, passenger uh, who was a CEO of a company in Arizona who was filmed inside a car uh, with a racial epithet. I don't know if you saw this news. No, I didn't see And that. they were fired from their job, wow. uh, in large part because it was captured on camera by an Uber driver. What kind of privacy expectations do you think a driver should have today, not rather a passenger should have today, when they get in the back of an Uber? Well, the laws, the privacy laws in every state are different, right? I don't know specifically what the laws in Arizona are. And there are some of our drivers who have their own security cameras for safety reasons, et cetera, and and it's totally understandable. And do you want those in all the cars, by the way? Um, I think it's up to the driver whether they want them in all the cars. We are working on, uh, we're testing systems where you can record a ride, for example, in Brazil. During those circumstances, we want to make sure that both the rider and the driver know exactly what's going on. And we want to make sure that the data doesn't rest with either player, rests in the cloud someplace, and is only accessed when needed. So I think these um, privacy issues are complex. I think disclosure is incredibly important to the extent that it moves safety forward. It's something that we're going to be researching into. Um, it's always a Travis question. I know you're almost, you're almost done with the Travis questions now that he's out of the stock. One is, I don't know if you noticed, he effectively left a billion dollars on the table. I think he did pretty well, and I think he deserved to do pretty well based on being a founder of the company. And the other question I was going to ask is, you know, he's building a new business Mm -hmm. that effectively is is about making food for delivery. Do you ever anticipate being back in business with him? We do business with restaurants. The more restaurants there are, the higher quality restaurants, the better for us. So we are doing business with his cloud kitchens right now. Right. Uh, And based on what I hear, that business is going to grow. Okay. Derek Hauser-Shockey, thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you. Very, very good to see you. Next on Squawk Pod, AT&T Chairman and CEO Randall Stevenson in his first interview in a year. And we had to ask, will there be a Friends reunion? I read that too. Yeah, we, we didn't announce that. But we own all of the rights for Friends and Big Bang Theory, so those will be obviously stalwarts on our streaming platform in May. An extended interview on that and so much more after this. 
Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. While Andrew was in New York chatting with the CEO of Uber, Becky and Joe were, and still are, in California at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, an annual invitational golf tournament that Squawk has been attending and Joe has been playing in for years. Joe and Becky aren't the only uh, celebs that attend. And uh, team leaders on this are Bill Murray and Clint Eastwood. Star-studded as it is, here on Squawk, we're focused on the business leaders who play. It's really, I guess it's celebrities and CEOs, but in our circles, in our, CEOs. In our circles, there are CEOs. One of those CEOs, AT&T's Randall Stevenson, the event's host. He hasn't held any interviews since last year when we spoke to him at this same venue. This year, we started with a surprisingly strong economic metric that came out just moments before they had this conversation. It's the first jobs report of 2020. January added 225,000 jobs, well above Wall Street's estimates. Here's Joe Kernan kicking off the conversation with Randall Stevenson. It's great to see you. We haven't seen you uh, in, in a while. It's uh, good to be back. Let's talk. I mean, that was a the three-month average is like supposedly impossible to have done. It's like back to 210 or 215 or something. And that, that a year ago, I was told by Zandy and other people that supposedly know something that that's impossible. It feels good. I mean, it really does feel good. We went through a period, we were seeing it, we were experiencing it, where investment from our big customers, the ones that are playing here, had started to taper down. I, we attributed that to the China and, and Mexico trade situations. But I'm hopeful with that kind of behind us in the rearview mirror, investment picks back up. The job number is very encouraging. We're actually very bullish on 2020 in terms of economic outlook. Randall, the, when did that start, just the, from the slowdown from your investment? It's from been going on about a year. Wow. Yeah. The uh, AT&T, you, had, you, know, you transformed the company into a, a, a huge media player. And, and some people say, oh, you should have stayed you know, the way Verizon does it and just focus on, on your P's and Q's and you're taking on too much debt. And, I mean, a year has gone by. Can you update us on the progress in terms of, yeah. of, of paying down the debt and the results that you're getting? The stock's done well uh, as well. For Look, we, came, we came into the year 2019 last year, and we told everybody number one priority was get the debt paid down. And so we took on $40 billion of debt to do this deal. And uh, we exited last year having paid off $30 billion of the debt. We said we wanted to exit the year at two and a half times debt to EBITDA. That was our threshold. We said it was a healthy place to be. So check that box. You know, we're at two and a half times debt to EBITDA. We said we really wouldn't start aggressively buying back the shares we issued to do Time Warner. 
until 2020, but the cash flow was so strong last year. We told the market to expect 26 billion in cash flow. We did 29. We bought back 56 million shares last year, so we're well on our way to retiring a lot of the shares that were issued to do Time Warner. We'll buy back about 100 million shares in the first quarter. That's well on the way. That, that process is going. You'll see us continue to buy back stock aggressively. The cash flows, the business are really strong. The businesses, the wireless business particularly, is, is executing really well. Uh, had a really good quarter on wireless. And the media business, I mean, the media business is uh, really doing well. John Stanky and his team are standing up a new streaming product. And I think it's going to be one of the most exciting streaming products in the market, HBO Max. And it gets launched in May. And uh, the outlook for that is really, really well. Is, so we're feeling good about where we Most are. Most importantly, you have all six friends? Are there six of them? I read that, too. Yeah, we, we didn't announce that. But, yeah, there, there, was, uh, there was some news yesterday that there may be an episode created. But that... That, that was not our announcement. Right? That was not your announcement. But we, do, we did pull in, as you know, all of the, the rights for friends. So we own all of the rights for friends and Big Bang Theory. We, we pulled those in in the fourth quarter. So those will be obviously stalwarts on our streaming platform in May. Do you like the wacky media business? You're from Oklahoma. You're, I know you. I've known you for years. You're saying it's not a natural thing. I don't know if I'm going to see you out there at those, at those parties uh, with, at Ari's house. Are you going to, uh, is that going to be something that... I don't know, Joe. You've not invited me, but it's, are you, even if you did, you probably you wouldn't see me. Will you change your overall persona? Will you go in you know, with some of those new sunglasses you saw me wearing? Will you, get, will you go in like that? I don't, I don't see that happening. That's why we have John Stanky. All right? <laughs> That's why he got... So, Elliot, I, and, and when I saw that, I, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not following it as closely as you are on what, what has happened, but for me it was like, what, they got bored messing around with AT&T and they've, they've moved on? Or what happened? How did that whole thing... The SoftBank this morning? Who yeah, with the there? SoftBank yeah. news. But how, did that, how was the relationship with... with, with was it uh, confrontational? Did, did you lose any sleep over what was happening? Was it well, positive? Of course. It was, it was a, you know, an intense period when they sent the letter. Uh, yeah. But, you know, when you, if you read that letter, you, and this is what I, I told the guys at, at Elliott, is you, I think you've identified a good investment. We happen to agree with uh, the areas that they thought the opportunities for AT&T were, capital allocation, margin expansion, and, uh, and uh, some, some things on the portfolio. And we were way down the path of executing a lot of this, but they had some other good ideas. So we spent a lot of time together talking about some of these ideas, and actually we came, uh, I thought, of a mutual mind. And uh, the plan that we put in place is a plan that our board had largely agreed to. They really gave me some good insights on some communication. I probably, candidly, wouldn't have communicated in the detail of our capital allocation plan that we communicated. But uh, their, their points were valid that it's maybe time to put some, some detail out there in terms of what our capital allocation plan was, share buybacks particularly. And so, uh, bottom line, I, I think they have identified it a good investment, and and they were right last year. The total shareholder return, we were up forty five percent. So, uh, and, and current man, it, stay, uh, John and you, and uh, it's going to stay the way it is. No, nothing. They're not pushing for anything to, to change at this point. I made a commitment last year that I would stay at least through twenty twenty. So I I, uh, I will stay as CEO through twenty twenty. Up and, to, uh, but possibly even longer. I, mean, I, you're not, you're I didn't not... give any indication beyond that. The board and I have to have that conversation. Obviously, you already said John uh, is doing a great job in your view. At, at I think the... there are a few people that have the breadth 
of, uh, of the business we've created. He's able to like see over the entire landscape. He's a he's tall like, guy, right? Yeah, like yeah he has a good tall, perspective. So he, yeah. I mean, that helps to be. But yeah, you guys saw last just night. stand on a box. He had an event. We had an event last night where he was interviewing Reese Witherspoon and yes. and uh, Andrew Wilson and Jeff Zucker talking about where is media going. And, and you saw a guy who has a breadth and understanding of the media world. He has a breadth and understanding of the communications uh, industry. So, uh, yeah, he's doing a terrific job. How, how many subscribers do you think you need for HBO Plus in order for it to be, okay, this is success, this is what we're shooting for? Disney just came out and said I think they have 26.5 million right. subscribers for Disney Plus. So HBO Max, Max if I could sorry, correct you, Becky, good. thank you. But uh, we, uh, so think of it this way. We have HBO is in the marketplace at about $15 right now, and we have about 30 million subscribers right. on HBO right now. And of those 30, 10 million are on AT&T-owned platforms. And those will convert immediately to HBO Max subscribers day one. The number we have put out is that we're, we feel pretty good that by 2025, our number should be about 50 million U.S. subscribers to HBO Max. And uh, if we hit those kind of numbers, which we think is eminently achievable, it's a real revenue lift and profit lift for the business. And it's putting all this content that we now own and the content production machine that we have over at, at Warner Brothers, it's just putting that content to work on our own platforms. And uh, I feel very optimistic, 50 million is well within range. Andrew's going to ask a question. Are you okay if I, if I bring him Andrew. in? Andrew. <laughs> yes, of course. Andrew. Of course, Andrew. So, up? Randall, I actually have a, a somewhat difficult question, which was you were just talking about Big Bang and Friends uh, being brought to the HBO Max uh, program or, or to the offering. But, you know, when we had this conversation in 2016 about the, the deal uh, between AT&T uh, and Time Warner uh, and some of the antitrust implications, and, and you went in front of a Senate hearing on this very issue about whether you would ultimately hold back programming, uh, you said it would be economically irrational. And yet, uh, in this last quarter, you disclosed that the decision to hold back friends and the whole decision to hold back Big Bang uh, actually cost the company $1.2 billion. So how do, you, how do you explain that both to shareholders but also to policymakers in Washington? Well, the policymakers, the, the question that we were addressing that I addressed in front of the Senate had nothing to do with specific shows. It had to do with channels. And would you, for example, hold back HBO just for your platforms? Would you hold back TNT just for your direct TV platforms? That's what I was referencing when I said it'd be foolish to do something like that, because at the end of the day, distribution is what matters. Now, taking specific programs and saying we're going to use specific programs for our platforms, absolutely you should expect us to do that. Not all of it. Uh, Warner Brothers has an amazing portfolio of content. They have a production machine that is unbelievable. They're going to continue to sell content to other distributors. We will continue to sell content to to everybody from uh, uh, Netflix to other streaming products. But there is going to be some content that we, will, we think will be very important to our own platforms. But again, not channels. We won't be withholding TNT from Comcast or, or, uh, or Chart or anything like that. Hey, Randall, can I ask you about comments from U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr yesterday? He said that uh, there may be a point where the American government or American companies and allies of American companies um, or allies of the United States, those private companies there, should be taking a stake in, in Nokia or Ericsson, that that would make sense to try and build up something to compete against Huawei. What do you, what do you think of that suggestion? 
uh, governments taking positions and private companies to develop private solutions, I just don't think it's a good idea. I don't think the track record of that's very good. I think the the uh, development uh, is going rather well. I do think some things have come out of the White House recently about are there other solutions that the uh, industry should be looking at to ensure that we're not tied to single providers, mm-hmm. software solutions. And as you probably know, AT&T has been the leader in developing software-defined architecture. And the point of that being, in simplistic terms, is rather than having a vendor who brings you boxes that has software integrated into it and says, there's your 5G solution, extract the software layer out, and then you can use anybody's boxes. We have people that are providing hardware into our network today that would have been considered unconventional five years ago because we have done this. We've extracted the software layer out, and then you can use anybody's boxes. To the extent we do that, we innovate our way out of this competitive quagmire where everybody's talking about Huawei. Use innovation, use software to, to win rather than just government mandates to win. The uh, net neutrality, um, we're still talking about it. Which is kind of, it won't go away, right? Maybe it finally will, uh, given this, this latest snap. For me, I always thought, you know, if you or somebody builds out this multi-gazillion dollar network, and you need to recoup your capital expenses. You don't need like price controls on what you're allowed to charge. It never made sense to me. But the world was supposed to end uh, in Silicon Valley with net neutrality, and it and it didn't yet. Now was it? Were they hoping that this was going to succeed? Is it going to end now? Now that it, it's not. I mean, we can put it to bed now, can't we? You know, your, your point's really good because when the FCC ruled that they were pulling down those Tom Wheeler rules on net neutrality, what happened? There, oh, there was hyperventilation, he knew and, and, too, and people he? Uh, people were really loud and boisterous. And now, what is it? A couple of years later, and the circuit court has said we support the FCC's decision; they wouldn't overturn it, and. You know, nothing has really happened in that two years. None of the stuff people thought was going to happen would happen. In fact, what people have seen are the only places where you're seeing blocking, blocking of content and so forth, are in the big tech providers, right? And so now the focus has moved to big tech guys in terms of you know, what their practices are, and it's not the Internet players. But there's, there's a really important point here that I think people need to just reflect on. President Obama is the president and the policies move one way at the FCC. Donald Trump, President Trump becomes president, the policies move the other way. And this is all a function of having bad legislation. And Congress needs to do their job. People need to step up and legislate rules rather than leaving it to bureaucrats because when bureaucrats are writing the rules, depending on who's president, you're having these crazy swings. And so I just really think Congress needs to step up, write rules that aren't left to interpretation of bureaucrats, and let's get this thing on stable ground. The, the, the Supreme Court's not going to hear this? What seems like a long shot. We don't know. Uh, I'm sure if you, somebody will test it, but it seems like a long shot to us that the Supreme Court would hear this. But you're not saying it's dead and buried yet? No, but it's highly improbable that this guy, uh, to me, it's dead and buried in terms of what the FCC has just ruled. Now, if there's an election in 2020 and somebody else is president, we could be right you back into it. you wish you had gone to law school now, given you what you've been Absolutely, through the last five Absolutely, I do not the last wish five, I had gone the to law school. The last five years, you've been, <laughs> all the court cases you've... It's, I've it's been like, to law school the last five <laughs> years. What are you talking about? Did You haven't lost any, I don't think, have you? You didn't uh, need a law. We've actually had a good record over the last four or five years. Randolph, can we go back to Huawei for a minute? Is it a security threat? Is it a competitive threat? What do you think as somebody who understands the innards of all this? Well, look, 
anything that involves communication, you have a security threat. Uh, I, I personally don't think the security threat is the big threat to the United States. The big threat to the United States is Huawei is doing an amazing job of gaining market share around the world on 5G. And if the United States is the only country that is not using Huawei in our network, then we have a situation where the supply chain we're dependent upon becomes subscale. And so this is why we think we have to innovate our way out of this. Uh, this can be a security issue. Uh, if you think about what's going to happen with 5G, and, and it's hard for people to get their head around this, but everything from autonomous cars to healthcare systems to utilities to pipelines are going to be managed on the back of these 5G networks. I think our government is rational in asking who do we think ought to be underlying the, the technology here? Chinese companies, should we question and understand exactly who these companies are and what the threats are when it's going to be used for this kind of infrastructure? How far behind are we? How long do you think it would be before we could catch up if you were talking about what the White House is doing with you, Microsoft, and a lot of other companies they brought into country? The United States isn't behind right now. I keep reading how the United States is behind right now. Three Why do we need to do something from the White House directing it? It gets to this point I was talking about. If the rest of the world is dependent upon Huawei and Huawei has scaled, we've not had a situation like this where a country has 1.4 billion people and a, a company supplying the technology that they can have global scale just on their own country, 1.4 billion people. If Huawei gets 90% share in China, they have 30% share globally. Now, if they get share in Europe and they get share, so we're sitting here in a situation where the United States is at a competitive disadvantage. And so this is why we have to find solutions to ensure that we're not at a very competitive, disadvantageous position around the globe, okay? I just, uh, just Ed and talking about, I, I can't help it, I know it's, it's John's role now, but, um, I mean, do you sit around talking about whether we're going to be a third season of Big Little Lies? I mean, is that your life now? Is that part of And is there going to be a third season of, of Big Little Lies? More little, importantly. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you heard the question last I, night I, asked, right? I, I got a non-answer last night. I don't know about you. That's what I always can't get. Can't you tell John what to do still? Or? This is my wife's favorite show. You think John would probably step up? Yours too? <laughs> you think Stanky would step up I'd and like, say, let's I, deal I with this? The second season. I, I'm glad that guy died in the first season. That guy really... He was a bad guy, do. wasn't he? He was really bad, that actor. That's it's a like, great show when we're all sitting here talking about how bad a guy that guy was, right? And it's all happening around here. I was going to ask Reese, did she drive right up the, 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 the coast from, because she lives right near the Bixby Canyon Bridge. She lives right down, you know that, right past I do. the highlands yeah. down, maybe not in real life, I don't know. See, I think, you know, we have Hans on. Hans has got a boring life. He's, you know, it's a great company. He's doing his, like, phone calls. Hans Vesper from Verizon. Yeah, Vesper. But I think it's cooler to, you know, have Reese Witherspoon. I like the business proposition of it. I don't know if it's cooler or not. I don't do cool very well, but I love it. You don't do cool very well. I wasn't going to say that. But thank you for uh, for being with us. Thank you. It's good having you guys out here. It's great to be here. Great to do it. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Next week, more on Elliott Management's stake in SoftBank and maybe some Oscar recaps. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrea Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Squawk Pod. You heard Joe. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently there's no video, though, I, I guess. You just figured this out. 
Is it just audio? It's just audio. Okay. But, you know, check it out. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.